Hi, I'm Ellie Carter from Extended, and if you've been enjoying our podcast, we really need your help. We need a few moments of your time to review Extended on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast player. A five-star review would be brilliant, and it would be great if you could add some text as well. The more positive reviews, the better chance we have of raising the profile of the podcast and bringing even more great guest content in the future. It will only take a few moments of your time, and we would really appreciate your support. Thank you. It scared me absolutely witless. Uh, you know, just uh, just getting airborne, uh, really, I, I found a bit of a lottery. Um, you, you held the stick hard back in your guts, powered up to about 80% on the brakes because the brakes couldn't handle any more, let the brakes off, go up to what we call full dry power, no afterburner, rock the throttles out into afterburner, you get this massive kick up your ass, and then you you basically just, I, I just got the impression I was holding on. Welcome to the latest episode of Extended. Email us now. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. It's time to talk aviation. Hello and welcome to Extended. This is episode 135. My name is Gareth Stringer and today we are talking about the F4 Phantom. Confessions of a Phantom Pilot, Memories of Flying the Phantom FGR2 was published by Font Hill Media in November of last year and I'm delighted to say that today we're joined by its author and former Royal Air Force Phantom Pilot, Tug Wilson. Not only was this Tug's first interview, but Confessions of a Phantom Pilot was his first book. You wouldn't think it to read it. It is a fine, fine piece of work and highly recommended. When you get to the end of the interview, you'll hear Tug and I talking and uh, putting the suggestion forward that there might be some phantom questions we could put to him for a future episode. So if you've got anything you want to know about the F4 Phantom, please leave them on our Facebook, our Twitter um, or send them into the website via an email and we'll get Tug back on for a future episode and do a Q&A on the Phantom. But in the meantime, enjoy the interview. Tug, welcome to Extended. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. I, I've uh, not done anything like this before, so um, it's a journey of discover, discovery for me. Well, you hadn't written a book before either, so you, you must be pretty happy with the uh, the reaction. Uh, I'm I'm absolutely over the over the moon. I, I I got it into my head that I tell these stories all the time, flying stories. Uh, I do it as part of my job. Uh, we do it over the dinner and drinks with people uh, whenever. Uh, you get uh, more than one phantom person together in the room. All they do is tell old phantom stories. So I figured I'd give it a go and and write it down. Not not for what you know. You hear all the horror stories about uh, publish uh, authors trying to get published and uh, getting rejected and uh, and stuff. And uh, I wrote to Fonthill straight away. They 
they've published plenty of phantom books before and um I'm not sure they read the manuscript, but they uh, they they said, "Yeah, we'll we'll take it on," and then uh, maybe got a bit of a shock afterwards when they did actually read what they were publishing. But uh, you know, I'm I'm I couldn't be happier. Really over the moon. So you've kind of hinted there a little bit. Now, look, I'm not about spoiling it for anybody. If anybody's listening to this and they haven't read it, I would urge them just to go out and get it if you like military aviation, the Phantom stories about flying. This book is for you, but. This is a little bit different, isn't it, to to maybe what people have read before? It is a little bit, and um, I, I've I've read a lot of um, aviation books uh, before. I like um, stuff from the cockpit, I like to hear what pilots uh, say about flying their aeroplanes. Uh, but I'll be I'll be absolutely honest. I'm not I'm not massively technically minded, and so uh, a fair bit of it goes over my head, you know. And I find some of it a little bit uh, uh, a little bit tedious and and serious so uh, what i wanted to do was give people a taste of um what it was actually like to be on a on a frontline squadron it just happened to be at the end of the cold war uh, and the camaraderie the band of brothers kind of feeling and and sally truth all the outrageous party in that uh, that <laughs> it was a real there was a real kind of work hard play harder uh, mentality you were judged on how good you were in the aeroplane, but in those days also how good you were in the crew room and the uh, and the bar. And I just these are things that don't normally get into the public domain. I just wanted to give people a um, a, a taste of, do you know, how much fun it was. Uh, I mean, it was it was pretty tense and it was hard work, uh, but it was absolutely t- the time of my life. And you, you, why wouldn't you want to just share that with uh, with other people? See what they see what they think. You know, um, of of the stuff that we used to uh, get up to and the scrapes we we got into and and whatnot. Well, I think we're all very glad that you did. So thank you, thank Super. you for yeah, that. Um, so aside from the opening chapter, which bang puts you right there in the cockpit on a on a launch from Wildenrath, we essentially start this story with a twenty three year old pilot fresh from the brutality of tactical weapons yeah wing wings attached stream to phantom which clearly was the dream and and we need to talk about the f4 obviously yeah Yeah. um i think the first thing that kind of struck strikes me is you know you're 23 you're very young you are fresh out of training and as we will grow to learn during this conversation you love the phantom you absolutely adore the phantom yeah The, the first thing you say about it is that she tries to kill you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, was, um, uh, if, if I go back a, a, a little bit for you uh, through training, flying training was was pretty hard. But you know what? It's supposed to be hard. If uh, if it's not hard, then y- you know anybody could just turn up and punch the clock, and and that would be that. But you needed a real amount of drive and enthusiasm to get through some of the brutality of uh, of flying training. Um, you know, being told you're not particularly good at doing something and it's your dream to do that thing is is hard to take and you need a certain amount of resilience to bounce back so i I got my wings back in 88 i think it was um but and and it gave me a bit of confidence but nothing really changed you know you then move on to another course and you start at the bottom again and and that's what happened when i got to the uh to the phantom ocu I, i had my wings i'd been through tactical weapons training 
which was a survival uh, kind of course. <laughs> and when when during tech weapons, what everybody was striving for was what was called a single seat recommend out of tech weapons. That meant you were good enough to fly single seat uh, single seat aeroplanes. Now the only single seat aeroplanes we had were the Harrier and the Jaguar at the time. They they'd stopped taking Lightning pilots about halfway through my tech weapons course, and that was really a dream for me to fly. Uh, you know that rocket ship didn't get the opportunity next best thing was the next best fighter on the block which was the phantom uh, i don't think i was ever going to trouble the single seat world uh, with my b- lack of ability so um <laughs> so it was always going to be a twin seat aeroplane for me and i didn't want to fly anything dull and boring like a bomber um i wanted to be a fighter pilot and so the dream was absolutely to get into that uh, into that phantom and the first time i flew it um it scared me absolutely witless. Uh, you know, just uh, just getting airborne, uh, really, uh, I found a bit of a lottery. Um, you you held the stick hard back in your guts, powered up to about 80% on the brakes because the brakes couldn't handle any more, let the brakes off, go up to what we call full dry power, no afterburner, rock the throttles out into afterburner, you get this massive kick up your ass, And then you you basically just, I, I just got the impression I was holding on uh, for good death. <laughs> the instrument panel was bouncing up and down. I couldn't read anything on the instruments. And then it, the funny thing with the Phantom was, you, I'd, I'd, other other much more professional pilots will, uh, will tell you I'm just uh, egging this, but the bottom line was it decided when it was going to get airborne. Right. You, you didn't tell it. It just kind of got to flying speed, sort of shrugged its shoulders and thought, well, we're not going to abort then. We might as well get airborne. <laughs> Leapt you into the sky, and, and there was all sorts of things to do, pulling the gear up, the flaps up, checking forward to 10 degrees, otherwise it'll flip on its back and kill you, you know, and <laughs> This horrific uh, kind of stuff we learnt in ground school, and but underneath that was this unbridled joy of, do you know, one day I might actually be in control of this, you know, and uh, and hopefully I'll, I'll I'll get better at it, but just at the moment I'm I'm hanging on and it's taking me for a ride, um, and then as you get more and more trips under your belt. The more in control you uh, uh, you eventually feel, until you try something new, and then all of a sudden you you're out of your depth again, and it and it was just this just this rock and roll uh, kind of approach to um, uh, to flying that I absolutely adored. It got under my skin. The jet was it was an ugly ugly looking thing. Uh, but it looked like a war machine. It was proven in Vietnam. And, you know, why the hell would you not want to fly this? <laughs> you know, but at, um, but at 23 years old, even with my wings, I, I, I really did barely know the difference between my ass and my elbow when it came to flying proper aeroplanes and operating them uh, properly. So, yeah, yeah, what a blast. What and an absolute blast. The, the other thing, yeah. your description of that first flight, does and this is maybe when i realized that this book was going to be a little bit different is you you introduce us to the guy in the back now on that in that case it was an instructor pilot who had to sit in the yeah. back seat this was your first yeah. flight in the phantom and i think um you know this was sort of pipe smoking uh guy who'd been around yeah. the block a few times had seen it all before very dry by the sounds of it didn't even yeah. really not much emotion even when you landed and i remember you said well at least i've you know whatever happens i've flown the phantom they'll, they'll never yeah. take that away from me but maybe you'd expect somebody to have been shaky by the hands and really pleased for you and it kind of starts 
to give you a feel for some of the personalities that are involved. And, and that is a bit of a shock, I think, to the reader, some of what you came up against. And I think you explained, was it the previous course? They'd, they'd chopped six of the eight before the halfway yeah. point. And yeah. I mean, this is a harsh environment, isn't it? It is. I mean, I wouldn't, um, uh, some of the people that I've described in the, uh, in the book, um, some of them that don't come across as well as, as the guys I really, really loved and enjoyed, uh, uh, flying with. Um, I don't, uh, I don't say it with a, with a kind of malice or a, you know, if any, they'd have been better. It was what it was. You know, yeah. this was the Cold War. Yeah. And, um, lots of people had, uh, flown aeroplanes decades before in the Cold War. The instructors I was flying with had been on the Phantom 10, 15 years. They had seen it all before. And I don't, I don't knock them for not, you know, I get out of my first trip. I don't expect him to be shaking my hand and saying, welcome to the Phantom fleet and, and such like that. It just wasn't like that. Yeah. It was flying training was a bit of a sausage machine prior to that. When you get to the OCU, you kind of, uh, I always think the, the instructors are looking at you. I'm wondering whether you're worth standing shoulder to shoulder with at the front line, because a lot of those instructors are going to come back to the front line at sure. some point. So it wasn't like I didn't think they weren't emotionally committed to it, but it was just this is the cold war, mate. You know, um, either either buck up or uh, you know where the door is, uh, uh, sort of thing. Um, and that was that was kind of an underlying thing. However, um, there were plenty of uh, plenty of guys who did put their arm around you and tell you, you know, this is, you're going to love this. You know, this is brilliant. And you, you just wait until you get to the front line and such like that. Just different personalities. Uh, uh, that was that. The, the brutal thing of, uh, uh, read my next book, Confessions of a, uh, uh, flying instructor. Oh, we will, we will. <laughs> I, um, I, I then become a, uh, a tactics instructor like all of those I, I describe at TAT Weapons. Um, but times had moved on since then and we, we hoped we were, more, I don't know, open and engaging instructors than some of the ones that, that, that we had before. In those days, it was cut and dried. If you didn't make the grade, you were gone uh, because there wasn't room for slack at the front uh, at the front line. Everybody had to pull their weight. But you know what? When I joined the Air Force, I knew that's uh, that's what it looked like. So, it, you know, it, we can't complain about, uh, about that. And I probably... You know, as a general thing with human beings, we uh, we look back at a lot of the negative milestones in our life. They're the ones that are the most evocative rather than the positive ones. And so uh, it's easy to talk about the stories of instructors I've flown with that I hated and had bad trips with and, and such like that. Uh, but I always try now to think of, you know, the, just the pure joy uh, that I had and the great people that I flew with as uh, as well. Tug, your your journey to the Phantom for British listeners at least was quite a traditional one, wasn't it? Sort of chipmunk, jet provost, uh, hawk for advanced flying training, then hawk yeah. for weapons, and then straight to the F four. Just from a purely flying point of view, these days we're incredibly good at preparing people for the for the next step. Uh, you yeah. know, and um, you know, so we have you know, digital cockpits and training aircraft because that's what they're going to see on the front line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What, from a purely flying, flying point of view, was that jump from Hawk T1 to Phantom FGR2 like? Oh, do you know, every jump between every course for me was, uh, was a chasm. Uh, it, <laughs> I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a single minute of flying when I, when I joined. I was, a, I was a proper direct entrant, no university, uh, you know, a man of, um, 
I, I suppose I, I was going to try. I was trying to get to university. I, I bombed my A levels a, <laughs> uh, a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but what I, I did have a knack for um, mental arithmetic, which is is great for a uh, for a pilot, of course. Um, but having having not had any experience of flying before, um, every time I went so straight into the chipmunk. Um, that blew my mind. There's nothing in that aeroplane, but it, you know, it blew my mind. Uh, the jet provost, there's more thrust in a cigarette lighter than a, than a JP3, but it was like I was flying supersonic aeroplanes at that point. So, so the leap from Hawk to uh, Phantom was spectacular, but I had probably the best part of 250 hours behind me uh, in those days. So, uh, my my handling was uh, starting at a better a better level than it was in previous aeroplanes, sure. um, but the the mental processing that I was able to use the airmanship uh, was quite highly developed at that stage. Um, when I said that, that makes me sound like I'm kind of ace of the base. What <laughs> I mean is, it prepped me for the sheer horror of, of <laughs> working in that uh, in that complicated cockpit directly with somebody else as well because that, that's actually the key with twin seat operation is we can all really pull the jet around you know it's um by that stage i should be able to fly an airplane properly and land it without crashing um but it's how you then operate with somebody else bearing in mind that the airplane isn't an airplane it's a weapons platform then and the whole aim is to get the weapon off the platform um in whatever state you can do that uh, and make that weapon make that weapon work so you give the weapon the best chance you do that by pulling your airplane around listening to your navigator interacting with that navigator uh, properly and when it comes together it's a beautiful thing uh, when two people work together like that in the cockpit and this is a theme throughout the book isn't it the yeah. y- yes we will we'll undoubtedly talk more about the phantom but the other important personality as a whole if you like is whoever sat in the back with you during all of these stories that you're telling and the guys that you're with during you know all the camaraderie and the socializing and everything now they perhaps haven't always held such a prominent position in some of these books they really do in yours and that and that that concept of being a crew was incredibly important for you wasn't it it was look i i I joined up to be a pilot. I was always a pilot. You'll see in the uh, in the book, as you've already seen, uh, Gareth, is that um, uh, there's very few references to pilots in the uh, in the book because I didn't fly with them. You know, I flew with navigators uh, all the time. I can't fly the Phantom on my own. You know, somebody has to be there in the back. And there are there are numerous horrific stories of. Uh, you know, ex single seat pilots coming to the Phantom and telling the nav to shut up. You know, I'll I'll do it all myself, uh, uh, sort of thing. <laughs> well, why the hell would you do that? You know, you've got you've got the ability of taking one plus one, and when it worked properly, it it equaled more than two. It, it just uh, it just did. We, I've I've flown with, I've flown with navigators who have probably spent most of the trip just managing me. You know, because I was uh, obviously either out of control, didn't know what I was doing or or whatever. As I got more experienced, <clears throat> maybe once in a while in that three years, I flew with a couple of navigators where I was spending a lot of time managing them. 
Uh, and that was the progression that, that was seen in uh, in me. But I'm more than happy to do that because they pulled my ass out of the fire more times than uh, than I can uh, I can remember. So this book is mostly um, most of the stories about me and the navigators or the navigators uh, uh, themselves. Now, the NAVs always had this thing called the NAVs Union, uh, it was called. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it was it was a brilliant uh, uh, a brilliant thing. It was it was almost like they, they all looked after each other, you know, and uh, and such. And if they were if they were flying with a dodgy pilot, they all knew about it and uh, and whatnot. And uh, if you crossed the Navs Union, oh my God, that was it. You were you were done for the rest of uh, the rest of your tour. <laughs> so you got to keep the Navs Union on uh, on side anyway. But the bottom line is, I'm not I'm not the uh, if I was still flying aeroplanes, I would be saying to you, I'm not the pilot that I am today uh, without everything that I got from those navigators. I truly believe I'm not the man I am today uh, without uh, without some of the stuff that uh, that those guys not only taught me, but supported me in and and lived with me, you know, and, and we socialized together and and they were they were my best mates. So why why wouldn't I? Uh, be talking about yeah this is a pilot's eye view of flying the phantom but bottom line is you don't fly it on your own it's a twin seat airplane now the the pace that the ocu is unrelenting and the the, mm. le- the learning curve is is very very steep isn't it and of course the interesting thing is you as a prospective phantom pilot are going through the ocu but you've also got navigators going through yeah. the ocu and obviously the two of you you come together at various points don't you where you've got trips to pass and and you'll essentially have two trainee phantom pilot uh, one phantom pilot and a phantom navigator out yeah. together um that must have been quite an experience for both of you I would imagine. yeah it was i mean of course we've um through training we've had the uh the you know the utter joy of flying solo in an airplane we've flown on our own where you're responsible for your own life and there's no instructor there to uh uh, to advise or to even take control and, and save your life. Uh, so we, we've had that, um, uh, always, I'm not sure whether I can say this one, uh, uh, uh Gareth, but, uh, we have this phrase <laughs> where, uh, you go on to your first, uh, your first ever solo in an aeroplane. Takes about five minutes. You do one circuit to land, but the whole time in that circuit, your ass is going 5p, 50p <laughs> uh, and having this kind of, uh, spasm, uh, uh, thing. Well, uh, the navs don't get that. Uh, they, they fly with experienced people all the way through flying training until they got to the OCU. And the first person that they flew with that was as clueless as they were was somebody like me, uh, an ab initio pilot. And so that first, it's called the crew solo. So as pilots, we've already done a solo, uh, a solo in inverted commas with a staff navigator in the back. And that's a momentous trip. That's the first time I'm uh, responsible for the life of somebody else in the aeroplane. It's quite a big, uh, quite a big deal. And then a couple of trips later, I fly with a with a uh, an Abinishio navigator who knows less about the aeroplane than I do, and I've got like ten hours on it, you know. And it was like, <laughs> oh my god, really? So I, I don't think I've ever been more professional on that first uh, uh, crew solo as as a, a, 
either since or uh, or before, uh, you know, because uh, I was convinced I was going to end up killing him or 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 whatever. And we we I, re- I remember it, the guys uh, in the book is is called Les in the uh, in the book. We flew together. We were falling over ourselves to please each other in the cockpit, you know, with <laughs> with how good and professional we were. But that OCU, it was yeah, it was full on, but it's supposed to be full on, you know. But there were various stages where the pilots were under a lot of pressure. And then you get to a phase where the pilots couldn't relax, but we weren't quite under the pressure. But it was the navs. Um, and then it go back to a pilot orientated phase and then back to a nav. So when you start, you start to learn how to fly the aeroplane. It's called convex uh, conversion exercise. Um, that That's all pilot stuff. And um, you can either fly the aeroplane or you can't. And if you can't, you get chopped. Um, so we we get through that. That'll include instrument flying, uh, general handling, and and such like that. Then we went into the basic radar phase, where I'm flying with a, a staff navigator, who strangely enough is absolutely brilliant on the radar. Yeah. Does all the intercepts absolutely perfectly. But in the other aeroplane is the junior navigator, who and all the pressure is on him to make those intercepts work and using that radar i've tried it myself it was it was a nightmare i the respect i've got for how those guys did that um leaning over bending over in the cockpit staring into a black tube while some chimp fingered baboon like me is raging the airplane around the sky i i've got ultimate respect for those guys so that was the navs under pressure and then we'd get into the air combat phase, which is the pilots under pressure again. And then the the joint phase at the end, which was kind of advanced radar, low level uh, radar down at low level as well, intercepts at low level. That was that was both of us uh, in the ringer, uh, really. So, yeah, it was it was a full on a full on course, but uh, that's what it's supposed to be. G'day, I'm Dave Homewood of the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's only regular aviation podcast series. The Wings Over New Zealand show covers all sorts of aviation topics, with a New Zealand flavour but an international appeal. From interviews with veterans and aviation personalities, to topics like military aviation, warbirds, air shows, historians, authors, museums, aviation events, and much, much more. We have an extensive archive of episodes that you can go back to, and there are new episodes coming out all the time. Search for The Wings Over New Zealand show. Oh. And by the way, we love Extended. It's a great show. Well done, guys. You certainly don't bombard us with technical um, information. Yeah. You mentioned that at the start. But those um, reading about those that the early stages of that radar phase and those intercepts, that is still a very, very sort of complex exercise in space and time, isn't it, to, to make those it is. work? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I play up uh, to the, uh, the fact that I... I didn't really know that much about the uh, the aeroplane. Obviously, we had to know enough to pass the exams and and be able to go uh, to go flying. But I was never really that that nerd pilot who sat in the corner of the crew room with the aircrew manual, trying to you know build his uh, knowledge time and time again. You know, I was just having too much of a good time to uh, uh, to do that. But the um, I, I think you'll you'll see when we start intercept training, um, you the idea is you look at the we have a radar repeater in the in the front seat, uh, just on top of the combing, um, which is where a head-up display would now be if if we'd had that. Um, 
I should be able to look at the uh, the blip on the screen, see what pattern it takes as it gets close towards us, and do what's called blip track analysis, um, and you get a picture of uh, of what the target is doing. In modern aeroplanes, there's so much more information on the radar um, that uh, it, it's it's so much easier to pick off what's uh, what's happening. Now, in the Phantom. Uh, radar, there wasn't quite that information. So I used to back it up with um, mental arithmetic uh, because you can do uh, you can do intercepts uh, purely based on on maths. Um, and like I said, I had a bit of a knack for mental arithmetic. So that's where I that's where I I think I made a little bit of headway for myself. Um, but you know, knowing what uh, you know what the best frequency for the radar was to pick up a target at God knows how many miles. <laughs> That was for the, uh, uh, that was kind of like for the nerds, uh, <laughs> for me. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, um, air combat maneuvering. Mm. Would it be fair comment to say that you were quite an aggressive character when it came to, uh, that, that particular part of your job? Yeah. Do you know what? There's, uh, there's two, there's two sides to every, everybody that, that goes flying and there should be. Um, the, the guy I work for now, the company I work for, is run by a, uh, a former Tornado F3 navigator, a very, very um, uh, capable guy. He's a weapons instructor, but I kind of let him off for uh, <laughs> because he's not the usual uh, QI. Um, but he has a brilliant uh, he has a brilliant phrase that um, sometimes you just have to put on the coat. Now, so I need to be two people. I need to be whoever I am in the crew room in the bar. Um, and I need to be whoever I am in the in the cockpit. Now, for certain times they'll bleed over into each other, and the guy I am in the cockpit is, you know, quite a good guy in the bar. Uh, he's not a good guy to be at home with his family, uh, uh, sort of thing. So, so whenever I got in the uh, in the cockpit, um, it's time to turn on then, and it's time to switch on and be somebody slightly different. Now, I had a I, I had a pathological hatred. Of being shot down by people, um, especially if you get gunned. Uh, air combat is quite a difficult thing to do. It's quite difficult to shoot somebody down. Uh, it's very difficult to gun somebody. You have to be in behind them and, and close aboard. And when somebody's trying to stop you from doing that by maneuvering their airplane hard, it's quite a difficult thing to do. So if you can gun somebody, it's very personal and it's very humiliating for the person that gets gunned. Um, now, Strangely enough, at the start of the Phantom, I wasn't particularly good at air combat, so getting gunned was a uh, uh, was a regular occurrence in the early days, and I just hated it. I, I, I saw it as a personal slight, you know that uh, that I'd be uh, yeah. The guy can't even be bothered to waste a missile on me. He's going <laughs> to save the missile for somebody else and gun me. Well, God, you know if you if you don't if you don't feel absolutely outraged by that, you're probably in the wrong job. Uh, anyway, so there is a certain amount of controlled aggression that you need to apply. Um, and I'd, I'd fly with navs who I, I was always amazed at how much the navs would get into the spirit of fighting things. Well, why wouldn't I try and mirror that? If they're yeah. going to put that effort in, then I they deserve for me to put the same effort in. Because if I get a shot down... The bullets are hitting them first before they before they hit me. So, you know, there's a there's a certain pride. Uh, there's a um, there's a responsibility to do the best that you can with the person that you're in the cockpit with. And if I'm not annoyed at being shot down, then I probably should 
you know, go and fly bombers or something like that. <laughs> and as even I know now, lots of turning with your feet in the Phantom as well. Yeah, I mean, what what a uh, what what kind of a design is that? That uh, <laughs> you know, when you're manoeuvring hard, if you use the ailerons, which traditionally turn the aeroplane, the aeroplane will uh, will depart, <laughs> crash into the ground, and kill you. You know, what what kind of a design is that? Uh, but that's why that's why all Phantom drivers are, are good on the rudder. Most other aeroplanes, it's just a footrest. Uh, but uh, but for us, we we turn the aeroplane, and and it would turn. My God, it would uh, it would flick uh, around the corner uh, when you put a boot full of rudder in at high angle of attack. It was uh, it was spectacular. Like uh, uh, it's spectacular in lots of things, but um, other other aeroplanes wouldn't expect a big lumbering aeroplane like ours. Uh, you know, really old-fashioned aeroplane to be able to turn itself uh, inside out. Uh, I've got to say, uh, the um, years and years later, I was lucky enough to um, fly the Hornet on exchange. Um, one of the best trips I ever did, two Hornets, and we flew against two Phantoms. They were the last um, Phantom squadron in the U.S. Air Force. Oh, fantastic. And they were based in Nellis. Yeah. These guys were all reservists, and they were they were ex generals and and such in the US air force and uh i i led the mission i said look I, we'll just go guns only in the hornet because you know we can turn inside out and yeah, yeah. and it, it'd be pointless shall we just go guns only and and these phantom guys went oh we'll go guns only as well then i said no guys you can have all your missiles they went ah that'd be all right we'll just do guns <laughs> so um i ended up uh, shooting one down and just as i shot him down the other one was creaming in uh, behind me. I don't know where my number two had, had got to, but I, w- I was in a twin-seat Hornet. My whizzo shouted, break right. So shot this guy, broke right. And uh, we ended up in, in what's called a rolling scissors. It's a big three-dimensional rolling yeah. fight. Uh, and it was absolutely outrageous what he was doing with this fan. <laughs> Stuff that I'd never been able to do in wow. three years on it. He was turning this thing inside out, and it, it was just spectacular to watch. Funny old thing, it only lasted like a minute and we gunned him because we were in a Hornet and yeah. I think could beat the Hornet in 1v1. Um, we got into the debrief afterwards and everybody was beaming. I probably shouldn't tell you this story, it's massively illegal, but uh, <laughs> uh, we got into the debrief and I, I was leading the debrief and I said, right, last fight then. Um, who was in the Rolling Scissors with me down at uh, down at low level? And and these two Phantom crews just, just kept stum. And I said, come on, guys. One of you, you know, you, it was one of you who was in the rolling scissors with me. And this guy, this old general went, uh, rolling scissors, you say? Yeah. What, down at low level? Yes. Yeah, sir. And he went, no, nah, that'd be illegal, son. And that's what he said to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough then. All right. End, uh, end of debrief. We all decided what a great hoot it was and we should do it again. That's some other brilliant. Time, you know? That's brilliant. But yeah, what he was doing with the F4. I could only have ever dreamed about. So uh, yeah, that's where that's where four thousand hours on the aeroplane oh, gets you. Brilliant. Yeah. So, Tug, you successfully um, navigate, for want of a better phrase, the OCU. You're getting towards the yeah. end. Why was it so important for you to go to Germany? So you've uh, again I won't give away the uh, the thing in the book as no. to how I got the the tour in Germany. Um, I flew with um, I flew with one staff nav early doors in the OCU and he asked me uh, as we were flying around waiting to start another intercept where where what squadron I wanted to go to and I said I'm thinking about Germany 
the, the reason I thought about Germany was it was the proper front line. So um, those that have served in Germany, this will sound really elite, um, but those that served in Germany truly believe they were properly on the front line. Those that didn't have not had that experience and therefore we don't break them. So we're, even years, this is years after I've served on the front line in Germany, it's still part of me. Right. And, and we don't rate people who, who had not been in Germany. That's the same for fighter squadrons, bomber squadrons, Harrier squadrons, the, the whole, the whole ish. Um, this particular NAV, when he said I was thinking of Germany, then spent the rest of the trip while he was doing intercepts on the radar <laughs> telling me how great Germany was. And, and he just seemed to have all of this capacity, uh, and whatnot. And so when there was one slot, um, miraculously appeared, uh, on our course for a pilot to go to Germany and out of four pilots, I was the only one that volunteered for it. So I was, I was over the moon with it, but it was, it was that whole thing of it was the proper front line. Um, if you want to prove yourself as a fighter pilot, you go to Germany, uh, because the learning curve is near vertical it is a hard school and you know it it was work hard play it played like granite it was so hard so um so i thought well if i'm gonna if i'm gonna prove myself then that would be the place would it um who knows i mean god i tell you the truth i just wanted to get through the next trip you know if i got (laughs) trip. I'd get another one. If I got through the final trip, I'd end up on a squadron. And it was all, it was all little stepping stone things of things they can't take away from me. You know, if I get to the front line, it doesn't matter where it is. I'd love to go to Germany. And I was just fortunate enough to, uh, to get selected to go, uh, to go to 92 squadron, best fight squadron in the world. And of course you start again, again. Don't yeah, you? yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's literally you work your way through the OCU, you complete the OCU. And then you kind of go squadron, but you tumble all the way back down to the bottom again. Yeah, and you go back onto convex, and and that's it. But that you know that at the start of uh, the start of your flying training career, that that's how it's going to be. And you know that even when you've made it on the front line, every year there's a day check, there's a night check, there's an instrument rating check, and there is a, a tactical check. So four check rides every year, uh, and you know that, and you sign up for that, and and that's it but you start again at the uh at the bottom but you're starting at the bottom of a place where people dream of going so it you might you might be you might be you know shit on the bottom of people's flying boots when you arrive at the squadron but the trend is so good and very shortly you'll be shoulder to shoulder with those uh those people wearing those colors and being operational on the on the front line and now you're giving back to society Given that society has paid for all of your all of your training, that's that's the mindset that uh, that I certainly had uh, going through there. Uh, Tug, aside from the fact that you have kind of you are starting at the bottom again, um, and you are it's patently obvious on the front line. How did it feel to not be a student pilot anymore and to actually be on an operational squadron? Did it feel different? And not until I got my op badge, um, which was the end of the workup. Uh, the workup there. I, I think I've always. Um, I've always had this imposter syndrome uh, thing, as most pilots do, that you're not quite good enough to be there. You've yeah. got through by the skin of your teeth, you know, some some day they're going to find you out and uh, and such like that. Now, that kind of attitude makes you work hard, I, I, I think, uh, and you want to impress people and uh, and whatnot. 
But the bottom, like the, the key, is when you get your name badge in the squadron colours. It's got your wings on it, it's got your name on it, but it's coloured red and yellow for 92 Squadron. That Two two more gopping colours you could not put together, <laughs> but I adored it. I adored wearing red and yellow. I got a name badge quite early by accident. Uh, it was supposed to go to somebody else. They 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 cut a couple of the um, letters out, and it kind of said tug, and they uh, coloured it in in, uh, in red felt tip, and it looked shit. It was <laughs> me, and it was mine, you know. And all of a sudden, I'm wearing the, I'm wearing the colours, and it, and that's a sense of belonging. Uh, that as soon as you get those colours on, um, people want you to pass at the front line as well. You, you get the impression sometimes through training that when somebody struggles, you know, there's that sniff of blood in the water and uh, they're <laughs> going to get the axe out and chop somebody and delight in, in that sort of thing. wasn't like that at the front line. Everybody that I flew with, uh, they were assessing me and testing me. They all, I got the impression they all wanted me to pass. Um, and, and, you know, there's responsibility on you to be a good person in the squadron, to be good in the bar, uh, et cetera. And, you know, and, 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 and try and be those people that you are aspiring to work alongside. And really on 92, um, I, I don't think there was anybody that anybody didn't really like. It, it was, you could go for a beer with absolutely anybody on that squadron. And spend all night with them, and it it wouldn't have been a problem, and uh, and that that was a that was a special uh, a special thing. So all of the feelings of a little bit of imposter syndrome made me work hard in the aeroplane, and I'm trying to attain a standard that all of these other people will be happy with. But I can start straight away in in things like the crew room and the bar and living in the mess and socialising at the weekends with all the other singlies that lived in the mess and and such, and just becoming part of the life. That was that was a that was a lovely feeling, you know, and you can start on that straight away. Oh, definitely, and I think that really comes through as well. Yeah. Um, looking back now, does, did the OCU do everything it needed to do to get you ready for that next stage? Do you think, looking back? Yeah, I think so. So there's there's only so much they can do on an OCU, um, and uh, despite the uh, bad stories I've told uh, of some of the people there. <laughs> Um, that there were some, there were some, uh, things that I was taught. So we weren't, um, uh, we didn't do a whole lot of low level, uh, stuff on the OCU. We did it towards the end of the course. There's only so much they can do. Nearly all of my life in Germany in wartime was low level air defense. Um, so I could say, well, they didn't really prep me for Germany, but actually they, uh, they did, but I got prepped for the front line when I didn't think I was being prepped. So uh, the the navigator I flew with who asked me where I wanted to go and then waxed lyrical about Germany, I did another trip with him. Oh, it might have been the same trip, actually, but he, um, uh, I ended up getting bollocked by the boss of the OCU uh, after that uh, after that trip. Now, through training, I, I've, I've screwed up a number of times in my career and I've taken the bollockings when, uh, uh, when I deserve to take them and I, I've got no beef with that at all. This one, I was absolutely flummoxed as to why I was on the, uh, on the hot seat. And, uh, and when the boss explained it to me, I, I just thought, well, that just, and so I went into the whole yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, uh, sort of survival thing. When I came out and told my nav, he was furious. So this staff navigator then went in to the boss's office and and stood up for me and I, and I just thought 
wow, you know, now that is teaching me stuff about operating at the front line without me even knowing I'm being yeah. taught. Yeah. That meant the world uh, to me, and that changed how I um, uh, interacted with probably every nav- every navigator I've ever flown with uh, since, including student navigators when I was uh, when I was teaching them. So the OCU was as good as it could be, I think, uh, with the number of hours that uh, that they had. Um, but it was the over and above stuff that you didn't know you were being taught that you reflect back on now and think, yeah, it was a, it was a great grounding. I, I, you know, I bitched and moaned about a couple of the trips I had on the OCU, but overall it was, uh, it was a, it was a great grounding. Did you know that the first G suit for British pilots was essentially a chest high pair of fishermen's waders, which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know? that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Did the Air Force do anything at that stage to to prepare you and a navigator for working as a crew, or were you just thrown together? Were were there any sort of any ground school lectures or anything to talk about crew cooperation and things like that, or just it was like, you're in the front, you're in the back, you're in the back, get on with it? it was pretty much like that. There was no no, formal, uh, say, crew cooperation lectures or, or training or anything like that. Do you know what the ultimate irony is? That's exactly what I teach now. As a civilian, you know, to uh, to young Air Force uh, aircrew. Uh, but um, there were it was almost like learning on the job and learning by a bit of osmosis. Yeah. Hearing what um, the navigate staff nows would say to you and what they demanded uh, from you. And everything was a learning uh, learning process. Every day is a school day, etc., uh, etc. Et but no formal training as such uh, on that. But you would be uh, you would then be assessed on your crew cooperation. It's called CRM now, but yeah. um, we called it crew cooperation for uh, uh, for years. You would be assessed on it, but you would pick it up by osmosis. Or some navs would say, "What I was looking for at that point there was for you to tell me directly this, this, and uh, and this." Now I suppose I've always I've always talked in the cockpit, even when I'm even when I was flying solo, I would talk my way through yeah, yeah. what's uh, what was going on. I still do it uh, now. We were booking something online last night for a holiday, and um, and my wife started answering me, and and I said, "What what's that?" She said, "You're talking to yourself again," uh, because <laughs> I do it all the time to prove that I'm doing things properly. Yeah. Um, so talking in the cockpit really wasn't uh, wasn't that much of an issue for me i'm not saying whether i was any good at it but it but it was quite a short step for me to uh to do that in the air so we've got to talk a little bit about the social side of things in germany um yeah. not not just from a squadron perspective though this was something that you know there were beer calls weren't there where aircraft would you'd yeah. fly off to remote bases it could have been like i don't know bitburg or bovishau so wherever it was where nations would actually come together and drink together and chat together probably about flying and and actually that's a really important part of what 
was happening, wasn't it? Sounds great. I mean, the way you... <laughs> It's a bit messier than that in the book, I'll warn. <laughs> warn people, yeah, yeah. But yeah. should all go buy an aeroplane, fly yeah. in somewhere, piss and tell <laughs> flying stories, yeah. Um, look, there's a... Um, it, it was of its time. Yeah. Let, let's yeah. just put it that way. No, now. absolutely. These days, absolutely socially unacceptable that people would fly aeroplanes away just to go partying yeah. for, a, uh, for a weekend. We called uh, some of them, we called them rangers. So every squadron would get 12 rangers every year. Yeah. Um, two aeroplanes, take it away to a NATO airbase somewhere and stay the weekend. And, uh, and we, we got paid to either stay in, uh, messes or, or downtown in hotels. Now, taxpayers quite happily, you know, stamp their feet and say, that's outrageous. And, and it stopped because it, it got into the newspapers back in the nineties, I think. But actually the idea was in the Cold War, we would launch, we would plug gaps between sand belts and shoot down whatever came through those gaps. And if the raid was still coming, we would stay on station and then we'd just go and land at the nearest NATO airbase. That might be Hopston. It might be, uh, if we work in uh, way north, it might be Alborg. It it might be somewhere in France, God forbid, you know. (laughs) So we've, um, that was the idea is that the Rangers actually had a training function behind them in that it got you used to talking to different uh, air traffic controls. So uh, Belgian, Dutch, uh, Norwegian, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It got you landing at unusual air bases. But what it also did was, it gave training to the ground crew at those bases who might never have seen a Phantom before sure. or an F-15 or an F-18 or whatever is landing uh, there. So um, I know uh, people will sniff a bit of bullshit uh, with this, but there was a training function behind all of those uh, all of those things. Now, if you're somewhere for the weekend or the night, what are you going to do? You're in a you're in a place with uh, maybe a 100 other air crew. Of course, you're going to have a beer and you're going to talk about flying. And and that's what you do in your swap flying stories. And that then what basically galvanized NATO uh, together, the air crews of NATO, uh, because I would then be flying on an exercise. I'd hear a voice on the radio and I'd say, um, Waldo, is that you? You know, it, it's Tug would say on the back radio. And now we have an understanding, you know, and uh, maybe just maybe we work a little bit better together because I know I can trust this guy uh, because he was the guy who put me to bed when I fell over in uh, in Albor. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, that sort of uh, that sort of thing. Now, I think the way our schedule on the podcast is going to work, that this is going to go out the week after uh, an interview about the Falklands um, oh, okay. air war. Now, some of your most the purest most incredible flying you got to do was out in the Falklands wasn't it yeah it is yeah uh the uh the land that time forgot uh absolutely um it's a it's beautiful in its starkness uh that place and um and I know people always say well why don't we just give up the Falklands and and such like that it's 8,000 miles away but what do we what do we care doesn't matter whether we care or not those people down there care and therefore, I I always uh, I wouldn't say I always loved going to the Falklands. It's a bloody long way away, <laughs> and it's a and it's an odd it's an odd kind of routine we get into. There's five crews, and we do a a set uh, rigid, inflexible five uh, ten day routine 
uh, with it. And, and it is a kind of Groundhog Day uh, uh, type type thing. However, if you want to fly an aeroplane down there as unrestricted as you can probably get, then that was the place uh, that was the place to do it. And I, I've always loved the Falklands for that and, and lots of other things. But but for the pure joy of you um, connecting with your aeroplane, I, I think there's there's never been any better place in the world uh, for me uh, to do that. And again, some interesting stories in there. That was also very personality driven um, yeah. detachment, wasn't it? And when, yeah. when you're such a tight knit group, that can that can have a real effect on you know everybody, I guess, within that that little tight knit group, or not or not so tight knit. Maybe is yeah, the case. Sure. Maybe. I mean, bearing in mind, it's five it's five crews. You go down there with your navigator. Uh, or he goes down there with his pilot, so we put it that way as well. Um, but you're thrown together with four other crews from other squadrons. Um, now, bearing in mind that there'd be another Germany crew there from 19 Squadron, our sister squadron, uh, who we, we would have respect for, even if we probably didn't like them. And then there'd be three British crews there who we figured were a bit dull. Um, you know, and there'd be, but there would be some ex-Germany guys there and, and, and whatnot. And so, um, you, you either get along or you don't. But if you don't get along, you have to be able to fly with everybody in this game. You, you don't have to like anybody, but you've got to be able to fly with everybody. And so you, you trip along in a, uh, in, in a certain way. If you get five crews down there and the other four crews you absolutely love, it's the best detachment in the world because you're there for six weeks and none of it really matters when it comes down to it. You can have a bit of fun in the aeroplane, bit of fun in the bar, and then you go home and, and you're back to your to your normal life. The boss down there, the boss of uh, it's 1435 flight is the is sort of squadron down there, which um, I'm, I'm a bit of a um, RAF history nerd. 1435 has a great... Um, a great history, sure. you know, um, defending Malta, and yes. as I'm sure you know. Yeah. But um, so, so I would, I would get into that. You, you know, the, the jets were called Faith, Hope, and Charity, like they were in Malta. Yeah. We had an extra one down there called Desperation, <laughs> uh, which was about right. So, but I love all of that stuff. I love that naming stuff. I love the the fact that we will take the time to do that. Um, and therefore, that's what another thing that makes the Falcons quite special. The boss down there, though, the boss of 1435, he does four months down there. I've not I've, I've been to the Falcons three times, all three times, about about two months in the boss will go mad, um, you know, and, uh, and 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 come up with these odd, uh, odd bloody orders and, and stuff like that. It's just because they're they're, they're been isolated yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for so long. I say every time the, the second uh, F4 boss I had down there had all of the um, evidence there to go mad and didn't. He, he was he was unbelievably cool about about things. But the first guy I had down there, I think he was in his period of madness and um, he didn't like Germany people. And for some reason, we we were the uh, we were the butt end of um, of all of that stuff. We didn't do ourselves any favors. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I made a couple of. <laughs> There, so uh, uh, it all evens out in yeah. the end. Again, again, you'll have to read the book for the details. Yeah. But uh, um, Tug, I'm, I'm aware I've kept you for nearly an hour already. But no, a cu- couple. Look, uh, my, my life is so <laughs> empty. Nothing else to do but talk to you, Gareth. So let's, let's keep going. A couple of other questions. Um, yeah. And, and funnily enough, you've, you've just kind of preempted one. You've, you've just said you're a bit of an RAF history nerd. Um, yeah. So 
you were at 92 at the at the end um yeah tell us about the blue jet and the fact that yeah. you got to fly that aircraft i mean that that was something special wasn't it it was so years and years ago um frontline squadrons used to do aerobatic displays um uh, whereas now we have the Red Arrows, which is a dedicated squadron to do that. Uh, one particular year or, or one particular uh, three-year period or, or whatever it was, uh, 92 Squadron were the display uh, squadron and they flew hunters. And they called themselves the Blue Diamonds. And they had these beautiful blue hunters. We used to have one in the house site when I arrived in Germany um, with red and yellow checks, um, you know, around the roundel and on the tail and stuff. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, when they told us that 92 Squadron was folding, our boss at the time is a great, great guy. Um, he approached RF Germany and said, hey, look, you know, we've got this uh, bit of history behind us. Could we have a blue phantom? And RF Germany, the Air Force had a ton of cash in those days. You know, they were <laughs> blowing their nose on five pound notes. Uh, we were so rich. Um, and they obviously said, yeah, fair enough. So they painted up one of our phantoms blue. It was Zulu, uh, was the tail letter. Um, and, um, and I came into work one morning. I was leading the four ship first thing in the morning. Uh, and as I drove into work, this blue jet was in one of the revetments. And it took my breath away. It, it really did. And I wandered in, you know, to set up my brief and whatnot, saw the, um, went to the ops desk where the duty authoriser was. And I said, is Zulu okay to fly this morning? He went, yeah. I said, right, can I have that one? And he went, yeah, sure. Put Zulu up against it. And myself and, um, uh, a really good mate of mine, we, we're still mates. I just saw him quite recently. He's in the book as Bobby, um, the navigator. Uh, so me and Bobby were the first, uh, two people to fly that that blue jet and we went off to a um uh, a, a little mini exercise down in the Ardennes region in Belgium and uh, we had F16s working with us we didn't get a damn thing done because everybody just formated on our wing <laughs> and took photographs of this beautiful uh, beautiful jet so for an hour we wasted a tanks with a gas just having our photo taken uh, really on this thing it was brilliant and then uh, a few weeks later, I flew it again, and we tanked from a VC-10, and on board the VC-10 were tons and tons of military and civilian photographers. Yeah. So if you see pictures of Blue Zulu with another a grey phantom on its wing, um, and, and they're all over the uh, the internet and uh, and various books and whatnot. That's uh, that's me in the uh, that's me in the front. I love that. Jeff. I, I'm, a, I'm amazed that the boss or the sort of commander in chief of RF Germany didn't pitch up and blow the dust off his bone dome or something for that one. You would have thought so. That, I mean, generally, that's generally what happens. Maybe he was doing in the afternoon, Gareth, and I just kind of sneaked in there and uh, and stole his uh, stole his thunder. That is normally what happens. But but I, do you know what? That was Germany. Germany yeah. was uh, hey, it's day to day. We do our jobs. Uh, we're defending Central Europe for you. Uh, it doesn't matter who flies uh, who flies the jet. It could have been a pink jet for all yeah, we yeah. Uh, for all we care. You know. Um. So you, you've, you've mentioned earlier so that there's more books to come. You know, there's there's um, yeah. the flying instructor. You've mentioned that you flew the Hornet. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying you you did also fly the Tornado F three, um, yeah. which was yeah. um, the other aircraft you could have been streamed to, I guess, out of flying training. Uh, it was new yeah. and it wasn't very good, was it? At that at that point, would you, I mean that probably would have been devastating, wouldn't it? But uh, no, do you know what? I probably <laughs> 
I probably would have made the most of it and, uh, and been fiercely, fiercely proud of it had I flown it first. But I didn't. Therefore, compared to everything else, I flew it shit. You know, that's uh, that's that's how these things uh, these things go. The um, so out of tech weapons, the two fighters that we had were the F4 and the newly kind of minted Tornado F3. Yeah. It had been the F2 before yes. that. It had all sorts of uh, blue circle conquering, and, yeah, uh, yeah like all of that, yeah. uh, all of that stuff. And it was it was almost an object of uh, of ridicule. Um, I wanted to fly the F4 because I thought it was, you know, it was a proper war, war machine and, and stuff. And it had a, it had a kudos about it. If you went ground attack, um, you were looking at Tornado GR1 if you didn't get single seat recommend or Buccaneer. Yeah. And everybody wanted to fly the Buccaneer because it was proper man's aeroplane sort of thing. The F4 had that reputation on the fighter side. But I also thought, you know what? My future has got Tornado F3 written on it. So why wouldn't I just grab the uh, the legacy aeroplane, get it in my logbook, and then I've got two fast jets in my in my logbook. I, I was like I said, lucky enough to get an exchange, and ended up with three in in, yeah, my, yeah. in my logbook. So you know, lucky lucky boy uh, that I was. But the, there was never going to be any competition between the F four and the F three if it was a choice out of tech weapons. Did you did you know even at the OCU that the the Phantom was, you know, we're, we're in the twilight of its the aircraft's RAF career. I don't know if you knew at that stage roughly when that was going to be, but it was... Think, yeah, I don't think we had a date. Yeah. I think coming out of TAC Weapons, we knew that the Phantom wasn't going to last much beyond a, a full tour for me. Because the OCU um, had already moved from Coningsby to Lucas, hadn't it, in probably yeah, 87, yeah. I guess, to make space for the... Yeah, somewhere yeah. around there. So mm. I was OCU on uh, 89. I think I was... Was I the tenth last pilot to go through the okay. OCU? Uh, maybe the fourth last course or something, right. something like that. So we knew the writing was on the wall. We just didn't have a date. And you know what? A lot of the, a lot of time with these things, you know, they'll give a, a, a an idea of when an aeroplane's going out of service, and they always end up extending yeah, it, yeah. you know, because the, the 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 replacement isn't quite there, or you know. Uh, but buying new aeroplanes now takes decades, you know, and, and bringing them into service is always a uh, always a bit of a nightmare. So there was a chance I might have got a tour and a half or two tours out of it. Yeah. When the date was actually announced, um, I mean, it was, you know, Berlin Wall came down and that changed everything. The date was announced shortly after that. And the first stinking squadron to go was 92. I was... I was almost in tears. Yeah. I was absolutely gutted uh, uh, by the thing, and then um, and then to take uh, to take the aeroplane out of service altogether. I know things can't last forever, no. but for goodness' sake, these these jets were proven. They had they, they had plenty of life left in them, and do you know what? There was tons of life left in us. That that was I think that was what what upset me uh, the most was I'd got to grips with it. I thought up to a point, yeah. and now. You're taking it away from me. Come on, you know that it's you know we were we were just there, and we could have kept going, uh, but uh, but we but we didn't, and it did it. It um it broke my heart. Uh, it it really did. Um and you you'll you'll see that a few people have uh, spoken to me about the last few pages in the book. Um and I, I told you on the phone the other night, and you know my wife cried. Yeah. Uh, when uh, when she when she read it. Uh, tempered slightly with my my youngest daughter, she's about uh, 24 now. She she read the book and she said she rang me in tears and said, "I've just read the last few pages of your book, Dad." 
and and she said and I'm in tears and I went oh you know and I was quite pleased that she'd had that reaction and then she said it's like a proper book isn't it <laughs> yeah okay all right yeah. Yes, yes, Laura, it is a proper book. What, was she expecting yeah, a pamphlet or... Uh... Yeah, God, what, she was, uh, what she was expecting, yeah, yeah. Um, without, I'm not, I, I'm not here to try and make you cry or anything, but let's just finish. Um, what do you think of now when you think of The Phantom? What does it make you feel when you think, look back at your time with that aircraft? God, what a, what a uh, question. Um if you look at, do you still miss it? Oh, but like I've uh, like I've lost my best friend. Right. It, it's it's um, th- there's a, there's a few things in this, um, and, and I'll come back to that. Um, I had to give up flying when I was on the Tornado F3 uh, because I ended up with a heart condition, okay. uh, and that that almost uh, the condition almost killed me. Giving up flying almost killed me as well, and I had to come to some kind of an accord with myself. Years later, the, it's a young person's game. You know, I probably, I, I certainly wouldn't be at the top of my game now in my fifties. So, yeah. you know, it, it, at some point, I would have to move on, like the Phantom, like the Phantom had to move on. But I miss flying. I, I still do uh, uh, do miss flying. I do the next best thing, which is I talk about it for a living now. Yeah. I tell flight stories for a living, uh, and that's uh, and that's fine. But deep down, if you, uh, when you push at me. Uh, a little bit like uh, like now, um, there's no way on earth I've got over the fact that they took the Phantom out of service. That's why every year um, lots of ex-Phantom people go to a pub in London just off Trafalgar Square just before um, uh, Remembrance Day and we all meet together and tell the same old flying stories to each other and we're all getting older and older and older. I only go because at 56 I'm I'm one of the youngest there. I mean how cool is that? <laughs> uh, you know so um but we tell the same stories and of course my book came out uh, just prior to it this year so there was a little bit of bloody celebrity status and people punching me in the arm and saying why did you say that about me etc. <laughs> so that that was nice. Um, but the reason we do that is that we there is a love for that aeroplane that I've never seen in any other aeroplane ever. The the Jaguar guys have an annual uh, reunion. Um, they call it the Jag Vortex, I think it is. Uh, and they go there and tell uh, Jaguar stories, you know, both of them, uh, that, uh, that, because nobody's really that interested in it. Uh, you know, we'll get 200 people at that um, at that reunion on a on a good year. And and the day we stopped doing that, I'm going to the 92 Squadron uh, reunion at the RAF Club in uh, in July, and I can't wait. Brilliant. Because I'll see the same old people, uh, and I'll tell the same old stories. And uh, the drunker we get, the stories will get more and more embellished. But the thing that glues us all together is the absolute love for that aeroplane. I can imagine that people would love the lightning. I could imagine that people would love the Spitfire or the hurricane or stuff like that the phantom is in that same in that same league and um and if uh, out of all of the aeroplanes that I've ever flown uh, in my life if I could have one more trip in my life I would want it to be in a in a phantom and I don't say that lightly because I'm trying to sell a book about flying the phantom or we're having <laughs> an interview about the uh, about the phantom I truly truly believe that I've got over not flying I've never got over the fact that they pulled my jet from under me. That that was a despicable act, 
you know, of course it was going to happen at some point, but uh, but I, I've never got over that. Pe- yeah. People were taxiing in from sorties and aircraft were being cut up in front of them by scrap merchants and we used to we used to drive past the graveyard Shocking. every morning on the way to uh on the way to 56 uh, squadron uh which was my uh, second squadron when i was at Wattisham and uh it did it. it it it's like i said it it broke my heart it was almost like we gave it uh, i kind of gave it um credit for having life you know it was like i was going past the the uh, graveyard and I was thinking, look, look at you. You know, you, you're 25 tons of screaming death here, and you're allowing you're allowing a crane to pull your canopy off. But why, why is it not sticking up for itself? Why isn't it, you know, lumbering out of the graveyard and stuff? And we we gave it life that it didn't have, and um, and I think that's what that that's what killed killed me even more was the fact that it, it couldn't fight for itself, and it did. It just lay down. And it uh, and it breathed its last, and it and it it was awful. Yeah. Well, Tug, you you don't just talk about flying for a living now. You write about it as well. Um, I'm incredibly glad that you do. Um, thank you so much for putting some of what we've talked about today in the book with a lot lot more. I urge anybody to just go and read it. And I know that we'll be eagerly anticipating the next volumes if they've got anywhere near as much of the passion and humour. Um, that comes through in Confessions of a Phantom Pilot, they're all going to be great. Do we have any idea when the next one might appear, or is it a bit early for that? No, no, I'm writing. Um, I'm being contracted for uh, the next one, Confessions of a Flying Instructor. So that's me as a tactics instructor teaching air combat and low level, yeah. uh, uh, mostly uh, getting into probably even more scrapes than I did on the uh, on the F4. Um almost lost my life a couple of times uh, uh, doing it so yeah. that's kind of like a little hook into the uh, into the book there um we are i think looking at december this year brilliant and maybe i'm i'm hoping out just in time for christmas yeah. uh, let's yeah. uh, let's try that um and then straight away i'll be uh, i'll be writing the hornet book and um and that's just it I'd, i'm i'm writing in my spare time um it's stopping me from watching crap tv and uh, <laughs> And uh, and rubbish things on uh, on YouTube. Uh, it's good for my soul. It keeps my brain active and uh, and such like that. So I'll try and get it uh, knocked out as quick as I can. But you know the stories have to have to look right and and they've got to flow uh, flow properly. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'll get it as soon as I can for you. Well, thank you very much for the first volume. Thank you very much for today. Thanks also to Font Hill for uh, taking that punt, if you like. And, uh, oh my God, yeah, you know, and, um, you know, fair, fair play to them. I think they've got a, a winner on their hands. And, and thank you so much. I am sure our listeners may have some phantom questions. So we will make sure we put those in your, uh, your direction when they come through. And, um, and hopefully we can get you back on again. Um, I, probably would sit i'd probably interview you every month Talk to be honest with you to tell you the truth Gareth, i'd probably come on every month until you just asked me about um the end of the phantom there and how i felt i've, I've been been over the moon doing this and then you mentioned that i'm probably going to cry myself to sleep at night so I'd, no. I'd the next. Yeah. well um, don't be a stranger we'll, we'll definitely get you uh back on maybe we can invite our listeners to ask some questions and we can we can get you on to answer them that might Super. be that might be a nice thing to do Tell you um, what, I'd love to do that. Brilliant. It's been a blast, it really has. Thank you. Tug, thank you so much. 
Extended would like to thank its partners, Global Aviation Resource, the Royal Aeronautical Society and XTP Media for their support in helping to present and produce the program. Our legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website. Please do ask before using anything you hear. The programme is produced with a Creative Commons licence. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Knowing how to recognise a store being taught like visually and the basic PPL, it wouldn't bother me. Thanks for listening to Extended. And don't forget, we want you to contact us. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk is the email address you need. Extended. This is XTP Media.